welcome, Neil. is hell. The future ain't what it used to be. This is hell. And in the past, the future meant progress, which was hoped to lead to better and more enjoyable lives for, well, all of us. It meant peace and prosperity, hopefully, in our time. But the problem is, as our guest today explains, we're still stuck in the past. Not just any past, a past that is a myth, a past that is grounded in a narrative about the Second World War that is both highly selective and greatly exaggerated. An insistence that World War II was a good war, despite it being a massively destructive and devastating war, killing anywhere between 35 and 60 million people, and I don't even think that includes the Holocaust. A war that ended with fire bombings and the dropping of the first two atomic bombs. So how can something that was so awful be celebrated and what impact does that celebration have on u.s foreign policy up to this very day we will find out in a few when we speak with elizabeth d samet the author of america amnesia and the violent pursuit of happiness she is the recipient of of the national endowment for the humanities public scholar grant and the height prize in the humanities and she was awarded a guggenheim scholar or fellowship to support the research and writing of the name of this book again looking for the good war american amnesia and the Violent Pursuit of Happiness. I don't know how that title fell off that script there. Uh, she also is a professor of English at West Point. She's also the author of No Man's Land, Preparing for War and Peace in Post-9-11 America, Soldier's Heart, Reading Literature Through Peace and War at West Point, which won the Los Angeles Times Book Prize for Current Interest and was named one of the 100 Notable Books of 2007 by the New York Times, and Willing Obedience, Citizens, Soldiers, and the Progress of Consent in America, 1776 to 1898. Elizabeth is the editor of Leadership, Essential Writings by Our Greatest Thinkers, The Annotated Memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant, and most recently, World War II Memoirs, The Pacific Theater. The views expressed in this book and during our interview today with Elizabeth do not reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, the Department of Defense, or the uh, U.S. government. Again, the name of her book is Looking for the Good War. I have no idea how that dropped out of that script, so I'm putting it in over here. We only had the subtitle. That was weird. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live streaming, and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Hill. Dan, how are you? You know, I'm doing real good. Are you? Yeah, I vacuumed the condo. I've been up to all kinds of business. Huh? Look at Pet you. the cat, stared at the walls. Wow, how's that staring going? Contemplated my dreary existence. I got good eyesight when I put my glasses on. <laughs> So sometimes I take it off to take the edge off, you know? You rode your bike over here, and the winds were gusting like 40 miles an hour. Was it in your face, or was it behind you? It was blustery. No, I was going into the headwind, so it'll be nice on the way back. A little gift to myself. Supposedly. Right, right, no. Because it always shifts. It'll just change, exactly. like a campfire. So every day, Dan, it becomes increasingly more difficult for me to exist 
without a smartphone. And it's really annoying. I know I may be the last person in, on Earth, well, at least, you know, who does not have a cell phone of any kind, but that's the way I like it. I don't want to always be on call to everyone. It was bad enough back in the 90s when the local TV news station where I worked here in Chicago gave me a pager, freaking pager, so they could contact me at all hours of the night to ask if I could come into work at 4 in the morning. But giving everyone the power to call me whenever has always sounded, and by watching other people go through it, looked awful. Now, however, there are all these two-step verifications that you cannot get around, essentially forcing you to get a cell phone if you want to be on social media, and I don't. But we need to get the word out about the show and continue to interact with our online community, which we do enjoy. So I just might have to finally break down and join the late 20th century and get a sur personal surveillance system that I can carry around 24-7. Dan, more important than any of that, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, if you could spy on anyone or anything in the United States, who or what would it be? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. Or you can email chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. Dan, what's Jeff doing during this week's Moment of Truth? This week, Jeff... The birthday boy. Oh, really? Yeah. Look well, at that. He's going to show us the invisible, Chuck. Really? It's incredible. He can't usually see it, but we'll be able to see it this week. Uh, being legally blind and having gone to the Michigan Rehabilitation Center for the Blind, I do know a little bit of Braille. Do you think that will help me in seeing the invisible? I think that the chances are high. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. I really appreciate your optimism. Yeah. Coming up, how the good war was not all that great, and we need to stop thinking it was. Dan will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll also tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell. And there's something very special happening this week on Patreon. We're doing something a little bit different, uh, and then we'll get back to our regular format for Patreon next week. We'll tell you all about this in a little bit. Jeff Dorchin will be delivering this week's Moment of Truth, and we'll tell you what's happening next week here on This Is Hell. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity in talk radio, which still makes absolutely no sense to me. This is hell. World War II was the good war, the righteous war against the abuses of fascism and imperial rule. It gave us the greatest generation, a generation to be looked up to, and if we can, to emulate. But what if that is all a myth, a myth that is actually dangerous, leading to more violence and more wars? 
here to help us figure all of that out. Elizabeth D. Samet is the author of Looking for the Good War, American Amnesia and the Violent Pursuit of Happiness. The views expressed in this book do not reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. And it's the same with her comments during our interview today. She is a professor of English at West Point. Elizabeth, welcome to our show. Thank you, Chuck. It's a pleasure to be with you today. I appreciate the invitation. Thank you so much for being on our show. And I know this just popped in my head, but I know that this is always it's always reveals that the interviewer is not all that prepared. But that's not what I'm trying to do here. The name of your book, whenever somebody asks you a question about the title that's within the title of your book, it always seems kind of lazy and is an easy shot. So I want to apologize for that to begin with. But you say this is American amnesia. What's the difference between amnesia and denialism? Is this amnesia? Did people actually forget what the history of World War II is, or are they in active denial of what World War II was really like? Well, that's a really fascinating question um, that no one has asked me, so thank you. I, I don't think that it was entire, it's a very, that's very difficult to answer. I don't think it was entirely willful. I think that myth, it's hard to, to sort of pin a myth on one person or another, or to say that someone is willfully forgetting something or just accepting uh, what is popular in, in the current culture. But I do think there was a kind of psychological uh, component to it, a, a kind of mass psychology, a kind of desire to return to a time that felt uh, clearer to us, that to return to a war in which victory was decisive. And at, at this point, I usually find it helpful to clarify that the book's not a history of the war, but rather of, as, as you know, the way we have remembered it um, and the serial revisions of that memory. And it's not an argument that our participation in the war was unnecessary or unjustified. Um, it's not an attempt to diminish the crimes of the regimes that the Allies ultimately defeated or the significance of victory, the post-war liberal international order, which I think now is under some threat, but really an investigation into the ways in which the complexity of our participation, which was belated, ambivalent, reactive rather than proactive, has subsequently been distorted and distilled into the stuff of myth. And the amnesia is located in the fact that we have ironed out all of those complexities and made it instead a very oversimplified myth that is immensely flattering to us, that we are righteous liberators, that whenever we use military force, there is an exceptional quality to it, and that we have we sort of have this persistent fantasy that whenever America exercises military force, it, it is an exception to the rule, and that it will naturally produce some kind of conclusive victory. And there have been, of course, several conflicts after World War II that have put the lie to that uh, easy, easy understanding. And that's that, that kind of 
monolithic myth that we all reacted or that in the past, in the 1940s, during the Second World War, that everybody reacted in the exact same way, that we were all in this together, which is a phrase that we heard during the first and second year of the pandemic, especially during the time when we didn't have a vaccine. You write that during World War II, American automobile owners were required to affix gas-reducing stickers to their windshields. Drivers were classified by occupation, ABC, etc. Each authorized a certain number of gallons per week. The backs of many of those stickers posed a pointed question to the man or woman at the wheel. Is this trip really necessary? I found that fascinating because I never heard that before. Uh, And you continued, designed to train civilian attention on an unseen war being fought far away, the sticker became at once a badge of sacrifice and a practical necessity. In May 1942, to save fuel and tires, a number of states also introduced a 35-mile-an-hour speed limit called victory speed. As literary critic and combat veteran Paul Fussell uh, Fassel uh, proposed in his angry, provocative 1989 book, Wartime, Understanding and Behavior in the Second World War, the resulting, quote, inconvenience served to remind re- Americans that there was a war on, that the government felt the need to launch an unprecedented propaganda campaign to motivate civilians and soldiers alike. All these facts suggest the degree to which the goodness, idealism, and unanimity we totally reflexively associate with we today uh, reflexively associate with World War II were not as readily apparent to Americans at that time. And again, I know comparing the past to the present can always be problematic. And I know that your book is not just, it's not a history book. It's about the way that we reacted at that time. However, during the first year of the pandemic, especially when we were being told that we needed to all be in this together uh, and we needed some kind of effort that the public like they would do in a wartime, often using the public's World War II response as a barometer, so how much did the public response to World War II actually differ from our response to the virus? Because people were like, you know, we should be all in this together, just like we're all in this in World War II. So how different were our two responses? Well, I think one of the most revealing uh, parts of the, the story is that only a few months after Pearl Harbor, which is, of course, in our mind, a touchstone when suddenly even those, and as you know, there were plenty of Americans who, most notably the America First Committee and uh, Charles Lindbergh, who was a national hero and a fascist sympathizer. Um, after Pearl Harbor, we imagine subsequently that that everybody changed his or her mind, but not everyone did. And and by the, the winter after uh, Pearl Harbor, the Roosevelt administration was actually worried that the public did not feel the urgency of the situation sufficiently and felt the need to remind Americans uh, of the, the situation and of the need to contribute to the war effort. And you see traces of that not only in official government responses, but also uh, another bellwether, American journalists who had returned from overseas and who saw that the world was on fire came home and felt that there was a real complacency. And part of that, of course, was because of geographical distance. And I think that hearing their reports and realizing that after the first wave of, of shock and horror after Pearl Harbor, people became distracted again. And I think that there was certainly a comparative unity if you compare it to something like Vietnam, and maybe we'll get into that, but I think Vietnam was one of the great uh, 
turning points in in the way we remembered World War II or looked at World War II. But um, I think that the the comparative unity notwithstanding, there were certainly plenty of Americans um, who were less than than fully committed. So uh, let me just follow up on that then. How did the Vietnam War change the way in which we viewed World War II? So after Vietnam and after this need to, to reckon with that debacle and with what had happened there, certainly beginning, I would say, in earnest um, with the Reagan administration, there was a great desire to sort of erase that episode and to return to some earlier version of American greatness. And that was then followed, I think, um, by the by the technological and speedy victory uh, in the first Gulf War. And President Bush, of course, who was the first President Bush, who of course was a World War II veteran, talked a lot, as did many of his contemporaries, about the Vietnam syndrome and regarded the Gulf War as finally, in one of his speeches, um, kicking the Vietnam syndrome, um, you know, finally putting that to rest and restoring America to some uh, earlier version of itself. And that was, of course, a nostalgic look, uh, but it did it did kind of recover uh, a pre-Vietnam sense of ourselves. And I think that was immensely flattering uh, to Americans, and they seized on that. And of course, that preceded the, the 50th anniversary celebrations of the war. And that's, I think, when the myth that I'm talking about really gained a lot of traction and was uh, just proliferated throughout popular culture, through Stephen Ambrose's histories, through uh, Tom Brokaw's books on the greatest generation, and through some of the film that emerged at that time. And I think that that's the prevailing understanding of World War II that exists today. And I think Americans find it deeply comforting because of course, World War II was an aberration in so many ways. And the existential threat posed by fascism for one and the decisiveness of the victory for another, um, those are probably only the most obvious. I think that we haven't found anything so clear cut since. And so as a result of that, um, that's, that's the myth that I think we cling to. And I, I think the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, inconclusive as they were, have only added uh, to this idea that uh, World War II was the epitome of American greatness and goodness. So what role does belief in the good war play in the idea that many have that we can make America great again? Does the good war lead to that kind of political ideology? Well, I think part of the answer to that lies in one of my inspirations, who is uh, uh, Studs Terkel, whom you all know in Chicago very well. Um, but he, his his book in 1984, The Good War, an Oral History of World War II, was very important to me in my research. And he has a note in the very beginning of it. And he says that he adds quotation marks to good war. And he says quotation marks have been added not as a matter of caprice or editorial comment, but simply because the adjective good mated to the noun war is so incongruous. So Turkle found it incongruous. I'm not sure that we find it incongruous anymore. And I think that's part of the difficulty that we imagine there are some wars that are good and, and we have been condemned, I think, to, to keep looking for them. Um, and 
you know, at the top of the show, you mentioned all of the, the unprecedented destruction of World War II and the idea that one might fight for a just cause doesn't diminish um, the, the horror of, of the conflict and of the violence. But in our memory, in our myth, I think we have muted that destructive quality. We acknowledge it, we acknowledge sacrifice, but the, the idea that we, that we think of, of this as good somehow um, saves the violence from, from what it really is, which is a, a terrible thing to be avoided, of course, at, at all costs whenever possible. But Studs Terkel, and he certainly want, wouldn't want to uh, be put in this group, he actually was a member of the greatest generation. Do you think that incongruity of the good war is recognized more so by the people who actually were within that group that has been labeled as the greatest generation? I think it was. I think we we often talk about the stoicism of that generation, and uh, Ambrose in particular in in his histories talks about it, and he suggests uh, that that the stoicism conceals a a great sense of patriotism and cause and all of these things that we attribute to that generation. But when you actually look at the surveys and when you actually um, talk to members of that generation, I think what they felt at the time was was probably the pressures of short-term survival in some cases, rather than um, what we've come to think about it ever since, that, that many soldiers are not really thinking about causes at the time. Um, and there were various studies by sociologists that suggest that, in fact, cause is far more important, has been far more important to later generations of soldiers, to those volunteer soldiers, for example, who fought um, you know, in, the, in our most recent engagements. But we do seem to attribute to that earlier generation some, some greatness. And I think that there's a delicate balance between honoring real sacrifice, and I think we should do that, um, and thinking that there is some sort of lost greatness that we, we can't recover, that we're, we're kind of mired in, a, in an unhelpful nostalgia that doesn't really um, illuminate the future very effectively for us. Do you mind if I share with you a really great Studs Terkel story? Oh, I love Studs Terkel stories. <laughs> so uh, friends of mine work for an international humanitarian organization, so they worked very closely with Studs Terkel. Studs lives in, lived in this beautiful home over on Castlewood, and he had a window air conditioner, air conditioning unit. A guy took the air conditioning unit out and broke in while Studs was there. Studs saw the guy, and the guy said, give me all your money. And this is what's great about Studs. He said, I don't have any money on me right now. But I was about to go up to the currency exchange to cash my check. He was going to a currency exchange to cash his check, and he asked the guy if he wanted to go with him because then he would give him a couple hundred dollars. (laughs) That is just one of my favorite Studs Terkel stories because not only doesn't he use a regular banking system, he is actually going to take a guy to the corner to watch him cash his check so he could give him a couple hundred bucks. And that is exactly what Studs Terkel was like. So why do you think this myth of World War II is of the good war is so universally accepted here in the United States? Is this an, an indicator of how good U.S. propaganda is or how effective it is, or is it something else? Well, as I suggested, I, I think it has something to do with the comparative clarity of that time, although it doesn't it was, didn't seem clear at the time for many. Um, I think certainly 
the, the unbelievable global transformation, the undeniable need to combat fascism. Um, I think that as a result of that, we have used that, we have not found a vocabulary as useful or as popular to describe the world. And so as a result, we have recycled the term fascism any number of times. Um, the most recent Islamofascism, um, but thinking, and we've recycled the term axis of evil uh, from the axis powers. And so I think that those terms are very much the ones in which the world in some sense still exists. And we haven't, and I think the world has changed in so many different ways that that vocabulary eventually becomes outworn, but it is very seductive and it gives us, I think, a sense of um, a sense of strength and a touchstone to return to. So I think it's very powerful. And I don't, you know, I don't know, I don't know to the, ex the extent to which we will be able to get away from that myth, but I think we have to recognize what's good in myths and what's sustaining. I mean, nations are founded on myths, of course, but then what holds us back? Um, I often think of, of Abraham Lincoln as I, as I, do frequently when when there's some puzzle in American history or politics I'm trying to work out for myself. But for him, of course, the greatest generation was the revolutionary generation. And he called that generation the Iron Men of the Revolution. Um, this was in the, in the decades before the Civil War. And he recognized their greatness, but he also said that the virtues that made them so great and that helped them um, to succeed in their objectives were no longer the virtues that were necessary. So their virtues were passion and what he was looking for in, in an antebellum period that was rife with, with riots and uh, with mob violence and lynchings, that what was needed was, was cool, calm reason. And so he was able to look at the past in, in a very deep way without being paralyzed or hamstrung by it. And I think we need to find a way to think about our past uh, in, a, in a more elastic and more complicated way. And you write that myths grant life and take it away, give birth to nations and tear them apart, which is one of my very favorite sentences. So is a threat to a myth a threat to a nation? Can nations exist without their myths? Because I, I could be wrong, you might want to disagree with me, but that seems to be the battle in the erroneously named critical race theory debate, that they are fighting to keep myths alive. So is a, is a threat to a myth a threat to a nation, and can nations exist without their myths? So the, the that that's a great question. I, I think that the hold, the tenacious hold they exert over us makes it hard to relinquish them. I think there are ways, and I think maybe um, for Americans, this is of particular interest. We, we all grow up with, with various myths. We grow up with, with Washington and his cherry tree. We grow up with all sorts of, of myths that I think for children are very helpful. And then we, we grow into something greater and, and something more complicated. And I think that really the true test of a nation and its power to endure strife and conflict is to be able to discard what is no longer helpful. And I think that the, the, the wonderful thing about 
the United States has been its capacity to reinvent itself. We had to reinvent during the Civil War. We reinvented ourselves on a global stage in World War II. But there was a time when that kind of notion of potential and the future were paramount. And I think that's the great strength of the American idea. And what has happened in the, in the years since is an increasing tendency to look back instead of forward. And I think that stymies progress and the idea of, of trying to search for some lost greatness or some legendary mythological past um, is, is really incongruous uh, with, with the American ideas. You quote the philosopher and veteran J. Glenn Gray stating, if the character of Hitler and his paladins gave to the Allied side a moral justification unusual in warfare, the Western nations have no reason to forget their share of responsibility for Hitler's coming to power or their dubious common cause with the Russian dictator. During what was called the run-up to the 2003 invasion and occupation of Iraq, that is marking it kind of as an inevitable and unavoidable and that we had no choice but to go to war with Iraq in response to 9-11. I wrote about the U.S. role in bringing Saddam Hussein to power. This was when he was being compared to Hitler. So I made the remark about how we had to remember the role the U.S. played in the events that led to Hitler taking power, including the harsh reparations the Allies imposed upon Germany for this I was attacked for, as some were interpreting what I was saying, was World War II was solely the fault of the United States, and it was Hitler was or Hitler was in no way responsible. How did the U.S. in any way contribute to the rise of Hitler, uh, and, and uh, or the circumstances that allowed Hitler to come to power? And in pointing that out, am I, whether I recognize it or not, or want to admit it or not, supporting Hitler and opposing the United States? Well, I, I don't, I, I think, I mean, if we look at the 1930s and we look at the Spanish Civil War, for example, um, the the neutrality acts and the, the, the unwillingness to intervene there certainly permitted um, the Germans, particularly the, the, the war, the Luftwaffe to uh, sort of do a dry run for some of the things that ended up doing in World War II. But I don't think anyone could have predicted that, right? So I, I don't think that that I don't think the United States was complicit in the sense that it had some clear vision of what would happen if it failed to intervene. But I do think that we have subsequently conflated the consequences of the war, defeating the fascists, with our animating cause for entering the war. And that, that I think is the is the complexity that's that, that's been collapsed. That's part of the amnesia. So one of the stories that emerges from uh, the 1930s is that of Americans called premature anti-fascists. And these premature anti-fascists were those who fought in Spain. Some of them were members of the Communist Party, some of them were not. But when they returned, they were put on a, on a kind of watch list. And so then when they signed up to fight in World War II, because these were people who actually did believe in the cause of fighting fascism, they were labeled premature. And um, there's a wonderful uh, quotation from the classicist Bernard Knox, who was actually fought as a British citizen, but then later joined the American army. And he learned that he was a, a premature anti-fascist only after the war, 
um, this was an FBI designation. And these were the American volunteers of what was called the Abraham Lincoln uh, Brigade. So he, um, he learned this when he came, when he came back and he said that it's a wonderful uh, thing that he wrote. He said, how I wondered when he learned this, could anyone be a premature anti-fascist? Could there be anything such as a premature antidote to a poison? If you were not premature, what sort of anti-fascist were you supposed to be? A punctual anti-fascist, a timely one? Um, and so he, he says that's a perfect description of Neville Chamberlain and Lord Halifax, but in 1939, last minute was too late. And I found that story and his version of, of his way of phrasing it very compelling because it's very difficult in hindsight to, to right, to have, have, how could anyone have predicted these things? But there were people who very early on recognized the existential threat of fascism. And the idea that they would then be labeled premature, um, you know, was, it was an incredible incongruity for Knox, but I think it does show um, the fact that most Americans that after World War I were deeply committed to isolationism and really thought of this as yet another European squabble like World War I, which I think that you know, many felt they had been dragged into and um, that this was the same sort of fight. And so I do think that we, we forget the degree to which Americans were committed to an isolationist policy at the time and really didn't want to get, get embroiled. And you also point to a movie that I have seen so many times, I can quote it. In the summer of 1941, on the eve of our entrance into the war, the archetype of the reluctant American warrior was given an old-fashioned showcase in Sergeant York, the top-grossing film of the year, which I did not know, which recruited a hero from World War I for overtly propagandist aims. The film documents Alvin York's gradual conversion from Christian pacifist and conscientious subjector to calmly efficient infantryman and eventual recipient of the Medal of Honor. In fact, in the movie, he says that he won't shoot a gun, he won't touch a gun, but then he's contemplating it and looking off into the wilderness while he's back at home, and the Bible flips open from the wind to show him the phrase, give unto God that which is God, give unto Caesar that which is Caesar, Caesar's, and therefore he decides to actually fight. Did the U.S. as reluctant warrior ever really exist to any agree, any degree? Or again, is that another myth? Were we more so reluctant warriors prior to World War I or World War II? And then the myth of World War II and the Good War led to the belief in a reluctant warrior. Well, there's actually the, the idea of a, a kind of, of cause and a kind of messianic rhetoric that was actually attached to World War I and not to World War II. And I think that, that the, the um, I think there was obviously a certain reluctance. And I think that we have probably become somehow less reluctant. Um, I, and and I, maybe that has to do with, in part, the smaller scale wars we have fought. Um, but I do think that there is a, there, that we have been, I mean, ever since World War II, almost constantly, it seems, uh, embroiled in one conflict or another. 
We are speaking with Elizabeth D. Samet, the author of Looking for the Good War, American Amnesia and the Violent Pursuit of Happiness. The views expressed in this interview, as well as in her book, do not reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. I want to read this one little bit here because I think that this is, this is when I was speaking to my girlfriend last night about this, she was fascinated. You write, the GI of the European, but generally not the Pacific theater, would become a legend largely through identification with several iconic acts preserved in photographs and newsreels, giving chocolate bars to hungry European children, being kissed by grateful French women, and sometimes to his consternation by men, having his hair adorned with a flower by his liberated Italian host, the travel writer Norman Lewis, who served as a British intelligence officer attached to the U.S. Fifth Army during the invasion of Italy, recorded a scene in his diary later published in Naples 44 of shock and despair as he made his way through a series of towns on the way to Naples. And you then quote Lewis writing, We made slow progress through shattered streets, past landslides of rubble and bombed buildings. People stood in their doorways, faces the color of pumice, to wave mechanically to the victors, the apathetic fascist salute of last week having been converted into the apathetic V sign of today. But on the whole, the civilian mood seemed one of stunned indifference. What he seems to be describing is not a Europe celebrating the end of war, but being literally shell-shocked by war. What happens to our understanding, not only of World War II, but of war more generally, when we think of the end of war as a party rather than what it seems to be in Lewis's telling, which is a lot more like an entire society that is suffering from some form of PTSD. Yes, I I think that certainly Americans were welcomed as liberators, but those images that we preserve are not the ones that Lewis mentions. They are the, the only the celebratory ones, really, or, or almost exclusively the celebratory ones. And I think that that has led us to this feeling that people should always be grateful, in a sense, for our intervention. Um, and and if they don't, if they show insufficient gratitude, it's it's not our fault. Um, and I, I think the other thing that the image of the of the magnanimous American GI uh, also obscures is that America is that that Europe grew grew weary of of Americans um, in the years after the war. And so there's there's um, some of the government publications, the government pocket guides that were issued to American military personnel are full in those early years of a of a warning to be, you know, nobody, nobody likes, they say things like nobody likes people who are are bragging that they're heroes. Um, And it it encourages a kind of modesty. It encourages a kind of recognition that we are in the countries, the nations of um, people who, whose, whose cultures and civilizations are older than our own that have been, that have suffered immensely uh, in the last several years, the guide to to uh, American service members who found themselves in France, for example, is particularly strong on this point. It it lists all of the gripes and complaints that American GIs have about their French hosts, and it explains the the suffering and the privation uh, that the French had undergone during German occupation. So those early guides in the in the forties are very clear about that. 
and are always urging a kind of humility on American soldiers and, and urging them to be, to be good guests and, and to realize the ease with which a foreign military presence can be resented. That reminds me of my father, who was a World War II veteran. He would tell me that he hated it whenever somebody would say, thank you for your service. So he wouldn't wear anything that we ever suggest that he was ever in the military. And now we seem to have this society and this culture where we are supposed to thank people for their service. When I asked my dad, why shouldn't I? And he said, you don't know what that person went through at war, and you don't want to remind them of what war is like. So don't thank people for their service. Just acknowledge them and say hello, and that's fine. What do you think happened? Is that a change that you have seen where we are supposed to thank people for their service, whether they want to be thanked or not? So gratitude is always a tricky business. Uh, I think that uh, Ben Fountain's novel, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, I don't know if if you've read that or seen the movie they made out of it, but that captures, I think, very well the, the sort of theatrical culture of thank you that, that we have developed. I think we did it as a way to atone for our behavior during Vietnam, our conflation of, the, of those who fought in Vietnam with the architects of the war. And I think that as a result of that, the media and I think many Americans determined that they would not, uh, that they would not abuse veterans, but that they would be um, welcoming and, and, and grateful to them. But unfortunately, that, that, that's taken on, it, I mean, I think of it as street theater, you know, and, I, and I've, I've been present for those exchanges when I'm with my colleagues in uniform and strangers come up to them. And, you know, it's very sort of disruptive and, and strange. It's, it's, it's like a celebrity sighting. Um, and, I, and I think that after we, we put veterans on the, the jumbotron at stadiums and we thank them, then what happens? I mean, what are the long-term uh, commitments? I think Phil Cly has written really eloquently about this in, in several op-eds and, the, and this idea that we, it, it's still a way to hold veterans, I think, at arm's length, to hold soldiers at arm's length. And that is especially dangerous, I think, in an era of an all-volunteer force when the number of people who fight our wars uh, is, is, is so small comparatively. And uh, to just to, to thank people and, and be on our way is not the same thing, I think, as engaging productively and forging a, a long-term relationship and, and understanding um, of what national service really means, of what military service in particular means uh, in, in a republic. So was World War II for the United States not a crusade of liberation or uh, anti-fascist uh, war when it when it entered the war, as much as it was a war for our own survival, for self-preservation following the attack on Pearl Harbor. And if it was, how do we understand World War II differently when we see it not as a war against fascism at its beginning, but as a war is vengeance against the Japanese for the attack on Pearl Harbor? So clearly the, the proximate cause of our entry into the war uh, was, was the attack on Pearl Harbor. And that was, and you can see this in the propaganda posters, that was framed as a vengeance, right? A war of vengeance against the Japanese. 
And uh, the Pacific War, I think, has been comparatively neglected. It's not as easy to assimilate into this story of righteous liberation as is the European theater. And so I think in the years since that conflict has been mute, that part of the conflict has been muted while the European conflict has been elevated. I do think that there were members of the Roosevelt administration uh, clearly through Lend-Lease and other programs uh, signaled obviously what side they were on. Um, but the, the language of a kind of righteous crusade grew up only gradually. You hear it in uh, Eisenhower's uh, D-Day speech, you begin to hear it there. Um, and then afterwards, of course, that, uh, that rhetoric gained in intensity. But there was less of that, I think, than there was of a sort of practical um, urge in propaganda posters, et cetera, um, to, to sacrifice and uh, to, to join a cause that was an existential threat as on, you know, and that, that was really the, the, the pressure. Um, certainly propaganda posters emphasized uh, America as a force for liberty. It looked back to uh, the earlier periods, to the Revolutionary War period, to the Civil War period, uh, and various uh, slogans from, from founding documents were used in these propaganda posters. But um, certainly I think that this, this drive for vengeance was an, an initial, initially very important part of the rallying effort. So we've had guests on the past say that our justice system here in the United States is driven by a sense of vengeance. Here we are talking about uh, U.S. foreign policy, which seems to be uh, you know, driven by vengeance. What do you think happens to foreign policy when it is driven by vengeance? Vengeance is such a such a thorny issue, and it's so it's so emotional, and it, it's such a I think a human reaction to certain events. I think you you heard it um, after nine eleven. You'll remember, of course, that the analogies to Pearl Harbor were made almost immediately. Uh, but I think the drive for vengeance often leads to miscalculations. Um, that it imagines that violence makes things, uh, that, that, that it is possible to accomplish certain ends through violence that it may not be possible to do. And so, you know, here we sit over 20 years later, um, wondering what was achieved and what was not and what damage was, was done. Um, and you, you quote that D-Day uh, radio address by General Dwight D. Eisenhower. At one point, he says you are about to embark upon the Great Crusade. Did World War II and our idea of it being the good war, did that lead to every war since being seen as a crusade, as something infused with a kind of religious fervor? E- even if it we don't see it that way, is that the way it is? I was going to say packaged. Is that the way it, the narrative is told to us? Uh, did World War II lead to every war since being a crusade with infused with religious fervor? I, I think it's it's they have been infused or you, you use the word packaged, actually. And I think that that's an apt one. I mean, wars are packaged, right? They have to be sold. This is not just for Americans. This is for anyone. I mean, anyone asked to make potentially the ultimate sacrifice, there has to be some kind of motivation behind it. And I do think there is a kind of zeal um, that attaches. And 
Eisenhower's rhetoric notwithstanding, that zeal, I think, was largely absent at the time. And certainly in the post-war period, I don't think many Americans felt that sense of righteousness. I think they felt a sense of exhaustion and they felt a sense of a, a desire, uh, certainly among those who had fought the war, to come home and to resume their lives. There's often a sense that, you know, the, that the years that someone has spent at war have been, you know, stolen in a sense, stolen away. And um, there was a great desire, I think, to resume life as usual, um, rather than, I think, dwelling in this sense of, of righteousness. But the, the events of the Cold War, um, that kind of language, I think, grew. And then, as I suggested, um, after, after Vietnam, I think the intensity of that sort of uh, zealous, crusading language only only grew. You also point out that as much as we would later make of our role in liberating the concentration camps, their liberation, even after our entrance into the war, was never a priority. The Roosevelt administration first learned of Hitler's final solution as early as the summer of 1942. But as late as January 1944, Secretary of the Treasury Henry Morgenthau Jr. uh, presented to the president's his department's report to the secretary on the acquiescence of this government in the murder of the Jews. It was only then that Roosevelt created the War Refugee Board. Could the U.S. and the Roosevelt administration claim ignorance and that their response to the Holocaust was slow simply because the government was unaware? Because in 1939, the MS St. Louis, whose original destination was not the United States, carried over 900 Jews, I think it was 937, who were trying to flee Germany, and they were turned away by Cuba then the United States, then Canada, many of those passengers would then lose their lives in the Holocaust. So while the Holocaust may not have started yet, I've found references to it beginning as early as 1933 and as late as 1941, how aware was the U.S. of Jewish persecution persecution in Germany? Well, certainly, I think the the flood of, of refugees, um, those who were not turned away, uh, was a harbinger. Um, the St. Louis, of course, is is a celebrated case. Uh, American foreign policy was not particularly uh, interested, I think, in the fate of European Jewry at the time. There may have been individual Americans, certainly, who who were. Um, but you know, there's a long thread of of nativism and anti-Semitism in American history, um, despite you know the comparative liberties and and freedoms um, that American Jews have have enjoyed. And I think that the Certainly Jan Karski, the Polish courier, brought tales. Um, and Morgenthau himself, of course, as you just said, leveled this charge um, that, that the United States had been aware. So I don't think they could claim ignorance. Um, but it was never a priority uh, to, to liberate the camps uh, during the war. To, you know, there was talk of bombing the rail lines um, and things like that. Um, that was not the priority. Even after the war, and this is a really um, this is a really difficult passage, I think, in American history. After the war, Truman uh, had uh, commissioned something called the Harrison Report. He sent his uh, representative to look at the displaced person camps, um, where many refugees um, from from the camps, not all of them Jews, of course, but many of them, um, were subject to a kind of callous anti-Semitism among American soldiers. And Harrison's report um, was damning. 
suggesting that our treatment uh, of these displaced persons, as they were called, was amazingly callous. We didn't kill them, of course. Um, we, 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 weren't, um, we weren't doing that, but that we were really sort of callous and indifferent um, to their futures. And so even after the war, I don't, I don't think that we, we covered ourselves in glory uh, in that respect. You mentioned progress, and you quote French philosopher Simone Weil, arguing that uh, soon after the fall of France in 1940, uh, writing that the, the true hero, the true subject, the center of the Iliad, Homer's Iliad, is force. You cite Weil defining force as that X that turns anybody who is subjected to it into a thing, exercise to the limit. It turns man into a thing in the most literal sense. It makes a corpse out of him. You point out how Weil uh, discerned... Uh, uh, fundamental continuity between the seemingly alien world of Homer and that of 1940s Europe. Weil writes, force employed by man, force that enslaves man, force before which man's flesh shrinks away in this work. At all times, the human spirit is shown as modified by its relations with force, as swept away, blinded by the very force it imagined it could handle, as deformed by the weight of the force it submits to. For those dreamers who considered that force, thanks to progress, would soon be a thing of the past. The Iliad could appear as a, an historical document. For others whose powers of recognition are more acute and who perceive force today as yesterday, at the very center of human history, the Iliad is the purest and the loveliest of mirrors. What does it say to you, Elizabeth, about so-called progress when progress and technological advancement have led to more violence and far more destructive wars than the world has ever experienced in the past. So that, that essay on the, the Iliad has always been very important to me. And I think that what it reveals is that once wars are unleashed, they move at their own pace and they often move, it seems, independent um, of, of their architects um, and things rarely go according to plan. There is a, a powerful, savage force that's unleashed. And there are moments, and as I've said, as I said at, at the beginning of our conversation, I think World War II was one of those moments and I think we needed to fight it. Um, but I think that when we reflect on wars that were necessary, that we need always to stop short of calling them good because it seems to then gild the violence with which they were fought and to suggest that there's ever a time when violence is somehow not destructive um, or is exceptional. And so sometimes that cost is necessary, but it, it's never good. And I think, uh, I think that, that that's what that quotation uh, always reminds me of, that, it, that it's a force. It's a force that overwhelms uh, everyone involved. You mentioned the writing of a whole bunch of different past guests on our show, including uh, Roy Scranton, who wrote a book, Total Immobilization, World War II and American Literature. And you write how in that book he interprets our post-war attitudes toward projections of American power as the product of a reverence for the figure of the trauma hero and an undue deference to the veteran's special exclusive knowledge of war. That reverence, he argues, has been instrumental in concealing some of the war's fundamental contradictions, and it led to a corresponding neglect of those literary responses that expose them. 
Is that the power of messages and images about Vietnam POWs and MIAs and things like the Wounded Warrior Project, while calling or caring for anyone who has been horribly injured should be a priority, and pe- especially for people who have been disabled? Are those messages to some extent propaganda that continues the World War II myth of fighting a good war? Well, I think Scranton points to a, a, an important point, and this is something I, I often think about when reading uh, literature of war. And the idea that that is the sort of one realm of human experience that many people would argue uh, is closed to the imagination. And that uh, the idea that um, if you haven't seen the elephant, if you haven't been there, you have no right to talk about it, write about it, um, and no, no qualifications. And we don't really say that about any other endeavor of human experience. And I think to surrender that and to say that only those who have, who have had this experience is at once to suggest that every experience of war is the same. And we know that it's not, that it's wildly different. Even people engaged in the same battle might have wildly different perspectives on it or accounts of what happened. It's not a monolith. And it, I think, makes it all too easy to surrender our decision-making power uh, to those who have had the experience of war, who have, have been there. And the related question of suffering and of valuing that suffering um, as something that somehow elevates understanding as well, also, I think, creates a, a problem. Um, and so, again, that delicate balance between honoring and caring for those who suffer, which is our, absolutely our obligation, our responsibility, our duty, and to suggest that suffering is not necessarily um, something that qualifies one um, to make all sorts of decisions. I think that's a, that's a hugely important uh, point and not to sort of to assume that combat experience gives a, a kind of uh, decision making uh, power. Um, and, and the other thing is, I, I do think that, um, I, I do think we, these are all ways to, the phrase I used before was to keep veterans at arm's length. And I do think that in a population where the number of people who serve has dwindled so much and continues to dwindle, um, I, I think that that's a particular danger. It's, it's almost as if to say, look, this is your business to go fight wars in our name. And for all sorts of reasons, we don't have to worry or think about this. You also quote Tom Brokaw being interviewed on Meet the Press during the 50th anniversary D-Day commemoration, saying, I think this is the greatest generation any society has ever produced. In that statement, was Tom Brokaw a propagandist for war? And why don't we recognize when people like Brokaw, supposedly a journalist, are actually distributing propaganda? So my father was a member of this generation, and uh, you know, I, I, so of course I would want to celebrate it as as great. I think he was great, um, but I don't think it, it. It's not a provable claim, as far as I understand it, and I'm not sure why why we have to make it. What does it say about us as a country that we label a previous generation as absolutely the greatest? It smacks of nostalgia, certainly, um, maybe of a kind of decline, a feeling of decline, a feeling that uh, we can never be that great again. Is it to remind us of our sacrifices in the past or of our need to sacrifice in the future? 
the motivation to me uh, for labeling one generation the greatest. And then more recently, and you've probably heard this, people are, are naming the generations that the generation that fought the most recent wars in Iraq and Afghanistan as a kind of second greatest generation. I, I'm just not sure why we we need to have these kind of tears um, among generations. It just doesn't seem to me a very um, forward looking or a very uh, productive way to evaluate history. Um, and so there's got to be a way to um, to honor and examine the sacrifices people made in the past without necessarily uh, labeling them uh, as, as sort of, as Brokaw suggests, you know, uh, I think he, he suggests that they were destined for greatness um, and that they, that they fulfilled that. That, that kind of absolutism always bugs me. It, it starts like when you're a little kid and they, you, you're, you're asked, what's your favorite color? You know, what's your favorite movie? Like there's one favorite movie, like there's one favorite book. I, that kind of absolutism just always bugs me. We've been speaking with Elizabeth D. Samet, author of Looking for the Good War, American Amnesia and the Violent Pursuit of Happiness. And Elizabeth, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show because this is an absolutely fantastic book and all of our listeners should read it. The uh, views expressed in her book Book, as well as during this interview, do not reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Elizabeth, we end all of our interviews the exact same way. I promise this isn't just for you. Our final question is always the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write, it is impossible to fight one war at a time. After the war, George uh, H.W. Bush, the first Bush, proved far more interested in the metaphorical Vietnam syndrome than he was in the actual syndrome affecting Gulf War veterans. By God, he proclaimed in the wake of Desert Storm, we've kicked the Vietnam syndrome once and for all. Vietnam constituted, as you write, the most serious threat to the World War II mythology. Victory in Iraq allowed us to hear once again the positive life-affirming signals still pulsing from Bush's own first war. This was the culmination of, and that would be World War II where he served, this was the culmination of Reagan's revisionist work. So does war affirm and reaffirm that mythology? Does the U.S. depend on wars to reinforce World War II mythology? Is war the defense of a myth? That is a question from hell. <laughs> um, Yay, it worked. It rarely works. So thank you. <laughs> um, I think it would be, you know, we're talking about uh, oversimplifying and, and being too and, and, and wanting to be complex rather than absolutist. So I don't think I would subscribe to the fact that war is, a, is purely a defense of a myth, but I certainly think that our, the degree to which we believe in myths certainly inform what we think war can accomplish. And so the degree to which we buy into the World War II mythology I think clouds our judgment about what American force can accomplish. And I think we've seen that it clouds our vocab, it, it confuses our vocabulary. It clouds our expectations. Um, that's a pretty pessimistic answer. And I'll, I'll say, I'll add just this, that I think we have a real opportunity here having after over 20 years extricated ourselves from, from deeply 
complicated and inconclusive conflicts, to reckon honestly with those. Um, the, the world is too perilous and too volatile not to think with complexity. And I hope that the conclusion of these, these wars, the wars most recently ended, will give us the opportunity to look coldly and honestly at what military force can accomplish and what it can't. And, and not just the, that war can be a solution to our problems, and not just that American force can be a solution to our problems, but it sends the message back home that violence here domestically can solve our problems as well, which is really frightening. Elizabeth, I cannot thank you enough for being on our show today. This really is fantastic work, and it's and been an honor speaking with you. So thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you for your questions. I'm so glad we were able to get into an in-depth conversation about so many of the ideas in the book. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Elizabeth, and enjoy your weekend. You too. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to have another reason to read this book, she explains how President Reagan legitimized fascism in the United States. If what you just heard from Elizabeth on the good war myth being really, really bad for us, if that made you feel like you actually learned something, or yes, this really is hell, subscribe to our bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live at a special time this week, Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time, and is podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell, or you can show your support for this is hell by going to this is hell.com and clicking on support. Remember, we are completely listener supported. Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. Well, this week's question from hell is if you could spy on anyone or anything in the United States, who or what would it be? Do you have an answer? I would like a mystical portal into rooms that I just left, you know, so I could see what people are, what are, what they're saying about me, you know, what their feedback about me is, and then I'd, I'd grow for it, grow from it, and and trick people into loving me. <laughs> I see. That's me, though. <laughs> uh, over a Facebook, Roy. You're a regular oh, mus- magician, aren't you? Yeah. It would be a mystical portal. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Roy O at Facebook says, I'm going to say no one and nothing because I just don't want to see it. Okay. Shtoom. Uh, John T. says the flies on the walls. He'd be spying right back at him. Over Twitter way, we got Rock Taster, and he says Jeff Bezos. All right. It's a striking reversal. Yeah. Kind of like the flies. <laughs> it is. Um, old treasured friend, eat Farts69 says, my kitten, Bort, when I'm off at work. And then there's a picture. <laughs> there's an awesome of picture. Just the most darling sweet peppers <laughs> smelling a Monstera plant. I love Bort. I do love Bort as well. My favorite personal license plate, too. Yeah. You're not the only one named Bort. <laughs> Ahmed S. says, ever since I ordered a pizza from New York, I've been suffering from intense hellish syndrome which forces me to listen to Chuck's voice every day, only to find myself deeper in hell. I would spy to see what happened in that pizza place. I believe it's called Pizzagate? They make delicious pizza. It's a callback to an... Remember when that was the conspiracy theory? That was <laughs> yes. before Q. That's a retro conspiracy theory. My favorite theory. part about that was that the kids were being uh, it were kept in the basement and there was no basement to the building. It was like the right. Alamo. Right. <laughs> Hillary can do anything. She can dig basements with her eyes. Yeah. Wow. Anyway, well, I should have voted for. 
You betcha. That's all. That's all for now. <laughs> okay, so uh, we'll have the rest of your answers, and we'll be announcing your favorite answer uh, shortly after Jeff Dorchin delivers the moment of truth, which is coming up. You can still get your answer in under the wire at our Facebook page, tweet it at us, or you can email thisishellradio at gmail.com. Dan, what's Jeff up to again this week? I can tell you directly All that right. Jeff is um, going to make the invisible visible. Oh, He's going to show us the invisible. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, please become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams weekly and is podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash thisishell on this week's Patreon. We are doing something we have never, ever, ever done before. This is completely unprecedented. Okay, maybe way back in the aughts when I did a call-in from Cottage on Lake during my summer break with then uh, Chris Bigasinski. Uh, maybe there was an interview at some point back there that we'll have to dig up. But there's no monologue for me this week. We're not sharing an archived interview, though we have a great one lined up for next week on Ukraine. Uh, we're not, uh, our, we, so we're not doing an archived interview uh, that's unavailable anywhere else online except on Patreon, which is what we usually do, uh, just like I usually give a uh, monologue. Instead of us playing an old interview I conducted years ago, I will be the person being interviewed live exclusively on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell Friday at 11 in the morning Chicago time. Our affiliate at University of Winnipeg Community Radio, CKUW. More voices, more choices, which is broadcast from Treaty 1 territory, the homeland of the Métis people, is having their, they're having their annual fundraiser, and they've requested they interview me for some reason, assuming, I guess, that talking with me will lead to some level of success in fundraising. Who knows? I think we will be talking about the importance of community radio, but I'm going to find out what's up with Winnipeg. I, I thought it was this boring-ass military town, like all military towns. And then I found out from friends in Wisconsin and Minnesota that who have visited there that it's actually a really cool place. Not as in temperature, but it's actually... A very intense culture. So that's what we're doing for the second time ever. I'm being interviewed on the show, and I don't remember anything about the other interview, but we'll see if we can find it in the archives. And if we can, we can. We will share that on an upcoming episode of Patreon as well. But the only way you can hear all of that, it's me being interviewed this week on Winnipeg Radio, is by subscribing on This Is Hell or to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Coming up, Jeff with the moment of truth, the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, and we will be announcing this week's winner. We'll also tell you what's happening on next week's This Is Hell. Live from Hangover Country, This Is Hell, and Dan, I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. Faceless people from Indiana. Some people suffer from an inability to recognize faces. The neurological term is prosopagnosia, or face blindness. A film producer friend of ours has it. It's polite to introduce yourself by name, even when meeting him for the 35th time, so he has no trouble knowing who he's talking to and doesn't have to pretend to recognize you to spare you embarrassment. 
It's been said the one face he can recognize is his wife's, and only by the part of the forehead where her eyebrows approach the bridge of her nose. I'm sure the first thing that comes to the mind of most people is the potential for the numerous pranks one could play on such a person, from something as harmless as convincing them they're in a crowd when they're actually in a room with only one or two other people, to the far more amusing deception of leading them to commit a crime against a close family member. People are disgusting. That's what you call amusement? I'm not sure I agree. There is an odd kind of face, though, that can induce prosopagnosia in otherwise neurotypical individuals. Anethetism is being forgettable or having a forgettable face. It's the mirror image of the other thing we were just talking about, which I've since forgotten the word for. It's odd that two afflictions that are basically about the ephemerality of the human face should be able to be called mirror images of each other since each of them conjure a mirror image or vision field in which an image fails to appear. It's like talking about the mirror image of invisibility. But that's part of the mystery of mirrors. Within a mirror lies another world. And if it were indeed invisible, there almost wouldn't be anything at all to a mirror. What is a mirror but an object that reflects whatever is in front of it? And if all it does is reflect the invisible, it's unfit. But the subject of a malfunctioning or malingering mirror leads us into highly speculative territory, and we don't tolerate the highly speculative in this infotainment venue. A slight window of speculation is all we need. Open just enough so we can reach in and pull a thin conspiracy theory from it. That's why I'm here anyway. I don't know why you're here. Probably to trick someone into killing their mother from what I've learned about you in an above paragraph. Let's let bygones be bygones, though, shall we? What's really important is the issue of these people without faces. I mean, effectively, they have no faces, at least none that I can remember. Think of the power you'd have if you were instantly forgotten. You could go in for as many free sample gelato flavors as you wanted. All sorts of crimes would be possible. You could be caught on security footage, and it would be of no help in capturing you. No witness could describe you. You couldn't be picked out of a police lineup. You could play any number of different characters in a drama, and as long as they never had to share the stage together, no one would be the wiser. The drawbacks, however, are obvious. So obvious, I won't even list them here. The question arises. How do we know that people with this attribute exist? An interesting thing about it is, although they are repeatedly anonymous at a quotidian level, they do have the ability to be recognized once spotlighted in the public eye. The, give, the, <clears throat> the difficulty for them is getting into the public eye in the first place. One theory is that the gatekeepers of the spectacle have special spectacles for picking out of the masses anothotic candidates for power, fame, and fortune. That's how we know of three anothotic individuals, all of them eerily from Indiana. The most immediately frightening is Mike Pence, most recently the Vice President of the United States while it creaked under the ancient girth of Donald J. Dump, one of our most illegal presidents. Sure, you know who Pence is now. But before he became governor of Indiana, he had difficulty getting anyone to look twice at him and recognize the same guy.
He won five re-elections to his congressional seat, not because his constituents liked how he served them, but because they were looking to replace him with a fresh face. Another erstwhile faceless Hoosier is Pete Buttigieg, the current Secretary of something, Secretary of Transportation Explosions. He's also known as Pete, Pete Buttigieg Buttigieg. Although he is known to have policy opinions, a facial feature or two, and certain ambient idiosyncrasies, Pete Buttigieg, as he's often called, retains a great deal of his forgettability even now as a household name. And nephetism can return like a five o'clock shadow if the person in question is unremarkable enough even as a fixture in the spectacle. A name the world seems to have forgotten is that of James Danforth Quayle, vice president under George H.W. Bush. George H.W. Bush himself was a so-called victim of anathetism, but he seems to have been cured sometime while heading the CIA. Dan Quayle, on the other hand, has had a relapse so complete many assume he died at some point early in the second millennium. And there may be some truth to that, maybe even some super truth. There's a figure from the Japanese Edo-era yokai tradition called Noprabo, the faceless ghost. The legend of Noprabo was brought to the English-speaking world by the journalist, <clears throat> by the journalist Lafcadio Hearn in his collection of stories titled Kwaidan, Stories and Studies of Strange Things, some of which were adapted by director Masaki Kobayashi in his 1964 movie Kwaidan. The medical literature links the two, the Noprabo and the Anyathotics. Doctors are famous for gossiping and telling tales out of school, which should be a warning to all of us to keep our ailments and infections to ourselves. The doctors speak of a belief that those with remarkably unremarkable faces are in fact possessed by the spirit of the yokai, Noprabo. One legend that has grown up around the 41st presidency is the following story of anonymous attribution still told in medical circles. Dick Cheney, at that time serving as Secretary of Defense, was walking in the White House Rose Garden one night when he saw from a distance the Vice President crouched down at the edge of a pond. Cheney listened and could swear he heard the man softly weeping. He came up behind the VP and discovered that, yes, the man was definitely emitting quiet sobs. Cheney had the perverse impulse to push the man into the Rose Garden water feature and drown him there, but then he reasoned the effort would be more usefully applied one day when he himself was vice president and whatever little crying bitch was serving as president by then was crouching by the pond and he could actually profit from the crime. Later, he discovered that the ambiguous nature of the office of vice president could be of even more use to him than murder. So Cheney said, Mr. Quayle, sir, why are you weeping beside this pond in nothing but a kimono? For indeed, Quayle was wearing a kimono and weeping into one of its wide sleeves. Surely, whatever it is, can't be so bad as all of that. But the sobbing continued, please, Mr. Quayle, tell me why you weep so. If there's anything I can do to help you, you need only ask, and I will faithfully execute your wish. 
Quayle stood up, still crying quietly into his sleeve. As he turned to face Dick Cheney, he then let his arm drop, revealing a face without eyes, nose, mouth, nor any feature whatever. Just blank skin as smooth as an egg. Cheney let out a comical squeal of fright and fled for the safety of the White House. As he approached, he saw the president, George Bush the Elder, nursing an aperitif beef jerky stick in the porch light. He threw himself at the president's feet, crying out in fear, Ah! 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 Now, now, what's the matter, Mr. Secretary, said the president. Did someone hurt you? Nobody hurt me, but ah! Ah! Only scared you? It was Vice President Quayle. He was by the pond, crying, and he showed me, oh, I cannot tell you what he showed me. Ha! Was it anything like this? The president asked, and on looking up, Cheney saw that Bush's face had become blank like an egg, and then the porch light went out, and Cheney had his second in what would become a series of abundant heart attacks. And so the Taoist verse, which is Chinese, not Japanese, is confirmed. Seduction comes from what you can see, but terror comes from what you cannot see. And that's the moment of truth. Good day. So right before the show started, I was looking for something in one of my desk drawers in the office, and I found something that people, somebody sent me this like 20 years ago. And uh-huh. it's still on a piece of cardboard, and the cardboard says Political American. It's like these buttons. And the button says, President Quayle? Question mark. <laughs> How I know why I voted for Clinton. Uh, yeah, well, you're all embarrassed <laughs> about having had to do that. <laughs> yeah, well, guess what? It was a necessary I didn't evil. vote for Bill Clinton. Never did. Because I really? live in Illinois. So <laughs> he's going to win. So- I don't. I, oh, right. I have uh, not voted for one Democratic Party president presidential candidate since I moved here thirty five years ago. Because <laughs> there's incredible. no point. Because of idiotic electoral college. Hey man, I I live in California. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, so uh, listener Greg yes says that uh, he thinks the question from hell would do really well on Mastodon. Oh really. Yeah. So how am I, how am I going to regenerate this extinct dinosaur to do that? Well, uh, there's cloning. Okay. There's time machines. I don't know if you know about them. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's actually it's actually not a bad thing if we had a presence there. It's you, we can rebuild a, a a family there. I have 88 followers now. All right, I'll try it. So, uh, and it's pretty funny because fairness and accuracy in reporting right now, their Twitter handle has been changed, or their Twitter name has been changed to fairness and accuracy in reporting. Come join us on Mastodon. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jeffy. Yeah, Until tell me happy time. birthday. Oh, yeah, happy birthday. Oh my God, I'm so old. Don't don't remind me it's my birthday. <laughs> punch you is there a punch button all right jeffy (laughs) until next time yeah stay beautiful you too dan please remind us what is this week's question from hell by the way live from land stolen from the potawatomi people this is hell uh what is this week's question from hell and do we have any more responses this week's question from hell is if you could spy on anyone or anything in the united states who or what would it be we have one 
response in under the wire from hypocrite reader who answers my nsa handlers so i know what to get them for valentine's day heart 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 my nsa handlers which is a lot like fabio aj saying my fbi handlers internet history is what he wants to spy on i also liked eric saying the nsa neil c saying i'll spy on myself and laugh at all the dumb things i do Braden s saying i'm gonna catch those bastards making crop circles on twitter we had john t saying the flies on the wall which i really liked on facebook ray saying i'm gonna say no one and nothing because i just don't want to see it sls saying henry kissinger i like that uh kim g talking about her neighbor and her and their amazon packages and dan k who's going to be a guest on our show on march 1st saying don't know but it sure would be wouldn't be your gi track chuck so any of those really stick out to you outside of my gi track at this moment dan no i just like that picture of bort i want <laughs> rock taster to win because i'm team bort all the way all right Rock Taster, you are the winner of this week's question from hell because that image of Bort has melted our hearts. That and that makes this winner Rock Taster. Rock Taster, all you have to do is contact us with which piece of This Is Hell swag you would like and we'll get it in the mail to you. Post haste my answer to this week's question from hell. And then it leads to a question I have for Dan. If you could spy on anyone or anything in the United States, who or what would it be? My answer is cops, 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 cops. Now, Dan, remind people, what is the campaign? What is the activism work that you do down on 27th in California? Then I'll ask you a question. It's Chicago Community Jail Support. It's not too complicated. We just stand in front of the jail in a little purple tent, and we give snacks drinks, cigarettes, phone calls, rides to uh, people that are coming out of jail trying to help them out after what I'm sure is a deeply traumatic experience. Yes, definitely. So I uh, worked at a store. I had a pretty good relationship with a cop. Uh, I would let him shoplift. And then if anything would happen to our store, we could call him up and he would be there right away. So uh, I asked him, what is the best beat for a Chicago cop? Dan, what do you think his his response was? Or uh, what do you think the best beat for a Chicago cop is? Like the best neighborhood, the best kind of thing to do? I don't know. Maybe they like to get on those little bicycles and ride around, get a little cardio. He said festival security because you get to drink for free. Yeesh. And then I said, what's the worst beat for a cop? And I I want you to know, I thought this was the best beat for a cop until he explained why it wasn't. I don't know, walking around and trying to figure out how to help somebody. Boat police. Boat police. And I was like, why? That sounds, I thought that would be a blast. And he goes, yeah, well, in the spring after the thaw, you have to take the bodies out of the lake. And then you have to drive those bloated bodies back to shore. What are they just floating all around? I don't know, but it was a very dist- it like the, apparently they're in large supply. I think he was telling stories out of school. Oh, I don't know, man. That scared the hell out of me. Hmm. So uh, we are waiting right now to schedule Seymour Hirsch to be on the show next week. But in the meantime, we do have our first guest scheduled, Dan, who will be joining us on Monday and podcast shortly after at thisishell.com uh, during our live stream and played during our world broadcast premiere the following Saturday on Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR.
We'll have on senior political writer at Rolling Stone, Oswin Subsang. He'll be on to talk about his exclusive that was just posted at the Rolling Stone. Trump plans to bring back firing squads, group executions, if he retakes White House. The former president wants to expand the use of the death penalty and expand the federal government's options for carrying out death sentences. Oswin co-wrote the article with Patrick Rice. We may also, like I was saying, have the return of Seymour Hirsch to talk about his latest report, uh, which concludes that the U.S. was behind the blowing up of the Nord Stream pipeline in the Baltic. And we also may be speaking with someone about the huge train derailment that happened in Pennsylvania this week. Lindsey Gorey found a really great guest on that. Thanks to this week's producers, uh, Lindsey Gorey, Dan Hill. Thanks to Jeff for another moment of truth. Ronaldo for This Week in Rotten History. Sebastian for another Past Inside the Present. Thanks to Theron Humiston for everything that he does. Talk to you Friday on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Hang out with me, members of the This Is Hell crew and other This Is Hell listeners for Office Hours, our weekly meet and greet, that's really a drink and think, at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood, which has returned to its regular Wednesday evening time, beginning around 6 and going until at least 10 p.m. So if you're listening to the show on Wednesday, drop by tonight. Drop by, join us, and if you do, I will give you a free book. That's This Is Hell Office Hours every Wednesday evening starting around 6 and running until 10 at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. There is only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.